Jesus, we thank You for this truth that You reign this morning. You're over all things that we can trust You, Lord, completely with every aspect of our lives. And so now as we come to Your Word, we open our hearts to You. Come speak by Your Holy Spirit. We thank You for the gift of Your Word to us. And so, Lord, bless through this time, we pray and we ask it in Your Name. Amen. Please be seated. Just want to add my welcome to you. It's so great to be sharing with you today. Those joining us online as well, really good to have you linking in to be sharing with us. Um, We are continuing in our series. We've been in for a few weeks now, God's Good News, looking at the book of Romans. Today we're up to Romans chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, you might want to turn there. Uh, It'll come up on the screen as well or follow in your devices. Recently as a family... Uh, We were having trouble getting people to do their chores around the house. I don't know if you've ever had this trouble in your house. Uh, We've tried all sorts of systems over the years to ensure the chores are done, but without much success. But recently we found an app. And the app is called Our Home. And on this app, you can load up everyone's names, you can assign chores to different people, Um, you can assign a number of points to each of those chores depending on how long the job might take to do. So unloading the dishwasher might be 15 points. uh, Or vacuuming the floor might be 20 points. Or taking the washing off the line, 10 points. And every time somebody completes a task and ticks it off on the app, it notifies everyone else in the family that that task has been done. You can even send little encouraging notes to people when the task is done. You know, well done, good job, thumbs up, that sort of thing. Um, You can even assign pocket money or other rewards to the points earned. Uh, And at the end of the week, there is the points total. Who has earned the most points in the week? It is an amazing app. I'm not getting commissioned for promoting this app, I want to tell you. It was revolutionary in our house. People started doing their jobs left, right and centre. Everyone was comparing their points. We didn't have to nag anyone anymore. It was fantastic. They were even doing extra jobs to earn extra points so they could be on the top of the table at the end of the week. It was miraculous. It was amazing. At least it was miraculous for the first month. Anyway, it worked really well (laughs) for the first month. But it's a great example of the fact that everything in our human experience tells us that we are rewarded for what we do. Everything in our human experience tells us this. And so it makes it incredibly hard for us to understand and get deep within our hearts this truth that we have been looking at here in the book of Romans, that we are saved by faith in Christ alone and not by works. That salvation is received, not achieved. Our natural inclination is to push back against this reality because of our own human experience. In fact, the doctrine of faith alone actually can offend our own sensibilities. There's something within it that we almost find offensive. And Paul totally understands this. He gets this. And so here in chapter 4, Paul continues his argument that he began in chapter 3, or even before that, and he wants to now in chapter 4 prove to us without a shadow of a doubt that we are saved by faith in Christ alone, knowing that we'll have trouble to get hold of this truth. And he does this, the way he does this is by pulling a masterstroke. He actually calls upon two very prominent witnesses to prove his point. He calls to the stand Abraham, who is the father of Israel, the father of faith, and David, Israel's greatest ever king. So with that background, let's read Romans 4, it'll come up on the screen and uh, see how 
Paul um, proves once and for all that we are saved by faith in Christ alone. It says this in verse 1, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? What's the matter? That we are saved by faith in Christ alone, not by works. If, if in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? And then Paul quotes Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God... And it was credited to him as righteousness. Not to the one who works, sorry, now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David, King David, says the same thing. When he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised, in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is then also the father of the circumcised who not only are circumcised but, also, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be the heir, be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing and the promise is worthless because the law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith. So that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. Not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. This is God's word to us this morning. The word faith is one of those terms that can be understood in very different ways. Those who are sceptics view the word faith as referring to a leap in the dark, having a believing something that can't be proved is how often it's understood, but that's not actually what faith is. John Lennox, a professor of mathematics at Oxford University, in his book Gunning for God, argues that everyone has faith in something, even atheists. He says that the word faith isn't just a religious word. Lennox writes, the irony is that atheism is a faith position and science itself cannot do without faith. He quotes the contemporary atheist Richard Dawkins who once wrote, an atheist is someone who believes there is nothing beyond the natural physical world, no supernatural creative intelligence lurking behind the observable universe. So Lennox says, notice that the atheist believes there is nothing beyond the natural world because he or she can't actually prove it. So this is a faith position. It actually is a faith position they have. So faith isn't just a religious, world, a religious word or a religious term. 
We all exercise faith every day. When we go to the doctor, we place our faith in that doctor to diagnose us, to give us the right treatment. When we get on a plane, we place our faith in the pilot, the skills of the pilot and the mechanics of that plane um, to take us to our destination. When we put our money in in a bank, we are putting our faith in that institution to look after our money. Most of you came to church this morning by car. You realise at some point that it was too far to walk to get to church and so you place your faith in your car to get you here, to do for you what you could not do for yourself. And that is exactly what faith is. Faith is placing our trust in an object uh, or a person to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. So the question is not, do we have faith? But the big question is, what are we placing our faith in? So with this better question, a better understanding of what faith is, let's look at Paul's case studies he gives us here of Abraham, the father of faith, King David, and how they reveal through their life, through their testimony, that we are saved by faith alone. First, he calls up Abraham and Paul gives us three proofs from Abraham's life that this is the case we're saved by faith the first proof Paul says is that Abraham had nothing to boast about in verse 2 Paul says if Abraham was saved by his obedience then he would have something to boast about if faith equals obedience then we who are saved would be able to boast before God and others look at what I have done for we would be really the the authors of our own salvation you know, one of the downfalls of our, own, our, our home app that we were using is that it led to quite a bit of boasting and fighting in our house. Um, don't tell the kids I told you this, but it led to quite a bit of boasting and fighting. People were comparing their points with each other. People were claiming that others were unfairly claiming points that they had not earned. People were claiming that the point system itself was not fair, that certain items had more points allocated to them than they should. And uh, eventually, uh, it, it got to the point where I just had to actually restart the whole app again. I said, right, we're going back to a zero balance, reallocate the points, and we had to start again from scratch. But I'm, I'm sad to say, once again, it led back to the same place, and our home app is not being used much at all anymore. <laughs> very, very rarely, in fact. But did you know that this is exactly where workspace righteousness leads you to? That's exactly where it leads you to. It leads you to boasting, comparing with others. It leads to division. And the picture Paul gives us of Abraham standing before God and boasting before God about what he has done, about his obedience, telling God all the ways in which he had done that. And Paul says, this picture is crazy. How could we ever stand before God and boast about what we have done? And Paul then shows from Scripture to prove the fact that Abraham could never boast. He goes right back to the very start. He quotes Genesis 15, 6, which says, at the very start, before Abraham had done any of the obeying, demonstrated all all these different acts, he said right at the start, before Abraham had done anything worth boasting about, it says, Abraham, God gave him a promise. Abraham believed in that promise. And in that moment of believing, it was credited to him as righteousness. And what's interesting is that Paul uses an accounting term here when he says that it was credited to him as righteousness. It's this financial picture that he gives us. And he 
He keeps using this term right throughout um, chapter 4, um, this imagery of, of an accounting term. Ten times in this chapter, in fact, he uses this word. And the imagery is that of a bank statement where you've got a credit column and a debit column. And for many of us, our understanding of faith is that our lives are like a bank statement at the top. The bank of heaven is written across it. And in the credit column is where we put all of our good deeds, our earnest credit before God, the good things we do, our generosity, all, all our religious sort of acts go into the credit column. But then in the debit column are the things, our sins, the things where we, we go our own way and turn against God. And, and we, we hope that at the end of the day when we are faced before God and we bring our bank statement to God, we pray and hope that the credit column outweighs the debit column, that we have something in our balance to be able to bring to God so that God can accept us. That is often how we view our relationship with God. But the Bible tells us, and we see here very clearly in this passage, that that is not how the bank of heaven works when it comes to our salvation. But rather, in reality, the Bible tells us that every one of us have been declared spiritually bankrupt. There is a massive bankrupt stamp across each and every one of our bank statements. Did you know that? And the reason is because our debt before God is so great because of our sin. That we, even if we worked our whole life, we would never, ever be able to get enough credit in our account to be able to come to God and say, God, will you accept me? That's the reality of what the Bible tells us. But the good news is this, is that Jesus came and he paid our debt for us. We've looked at this already. On the cross, he took the penalty for our sin. He paid the debt. And then not only did he pay the debt, he then credits into your account by faith his righteousness. And Paul makes this super clear to us. He gives the picture then of receiving wages for our work in verses 4 and 5. I remember as a student having no money in my bank account, always scratching around for money to put, you know, just enough money to put some fuel in the car, a few liters of fuel in the car just to get me to the next place, normally to my wife Andrea's house. We were dating at the time so I could spend some time with her, catch up. But that feeling of never having enough money in the bank and then suddenly, then, then that moment where I got my first job and the first paycheck and being so thankful for that money being in the account, being able to do it. But, but you know, if you, um, if you do work for a job and then your employer doesn't pay you in some way, you get pretty upset. Why do you get upset? It's because those wages are owed to you for the work you have done. Your employer is obligated to pay that to you. But Paul says this is not how it works in our relationship with God. It's not an employer-employee relationship. Our salvation can never be credited to us by working for it. We have to receive salvation as a free gift by faith. It's the only way. Salvation is received, not achieved. Paul is making very clear to us. And one of the ways you can tell if your faith is based on works, on your own efforts, is that when God does not give you what you think you deserve, you get very upset and angry with God. Because you think, God, I have earned this, I have worked for this, I have been slaving away for you, living a good life to the best of my ability, so you are obligated now to give this to me. But actually, that's just like the elder brother in the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15. We see this exact same picture, but instead we need to understand that we receive salvation as a free gift. And when we understand this is our relationship with God, it transforms our understanding. It transforms our very relationship with him. So the first proof that Abraham was saved by faith and not works is that he had nothing to boast about. 
The second proof Paul gives is the timing of when Abraham was circumcised. We see this in verses 9 to 12. The Jews saw circumcision as the sign of membership in the Jewish nation. It was a religious and cultural symbol of belonging to God and solidarity with the Hebrew people. And so Paul says in verse 10, if Abraham's righteousness was credited after he was circumcised, then it could be argued that Abraham discovered that there was an act being circumcision on which his righteousness was based. And that righteousness was only available to the Jews, God's ancient people, through this sign. But in fact, it was not after, but before, Paul says. Abraham was already credited as righteous back at the start in Genesis 15, 6, even though he didn't get circumcised until Genesis 17, if you read the chronology, which is about 14 years later. So clearly, circumcision was not a condition of him being reckoned as righteous, Paul is saying, but rather, it was, we read in verse 11, the sign and a seal of what he already was in Christ, or through God, by faith in the promises of God. It was the physical sign of a spiritual reality. For us, the equivalent is baptism. The act of baptism does not save us. Rather, baptism is a sign and a seal for us of what we have already received by faith in Christ alone. And it's an incredible act. It's an incredible, significant um, symbol and seal for us in our own faith journey. But it's not the act of baptism that saves us. And the third proof Paul gives is the timing of the giving of the law. We see this in verse 13 to 17. Paul says it was not through law... Not through obedience that Abraham was given the promise that he would be heir of the world. How could it be? Because the law was given by God to Moses around 500 years after, after Abraham lived and was saved. So he could not have obeyed the Mosaic law since it had not yet even come. So how was he saved? Not by obedience to the law, but through trust in the promises of God. And so in verse 15, Paul again explains that rather than the law being the way of salvation, its purpose is to show us that we fall short of God's standard and lead us to an understanding that we are actually under the wrath of God, that we are in desperate need of forgiveness and reconciliation with God. And so in verse 16, Paul wrapping up this case study of Abraham's life says, Therefore, through Abraham, we can clearly see the promise comes and can only come by faith so that it may be by grace, Paul says. And then Paul brings David, King David, to the witness stand, which we see in verses 6 to 8. And Paul says, David agrees with Abraham, says the same thing as Abraham, that we are saved by faith alone and not works. You see, King David had many reasons to boast in himself. He achieved a lot in his life. Israel's greatest king increased the nation's borders, brought peace, established Jerusalem as its capital with the ark of God's presence at its heart. He had much to boast about. Yet David, if you know his story, also had many reasons to be crushed by his own sinfulness. He was an adulterer. And through conspiracy, a murderer. And Paul says in verse 6, David also had discovered the blessedness of the person to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. He quotes in verses 7 and 8, David's very own words from Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven 
whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. You see, David had discovered this powerful truth. We often talk about this here, that we, that it's not good people who are made right with God. It's forgiven people. It's not good people who can enter in to eternal life. It is forgiven people. So Paul says, Abraham and David, two of the greatest heroes of the faith, are actually proof that we are saved through faith in Christ alone, not by works, so that no one can boast, as Ephesians 2 puts it. Now, as I said in week one, it just does not mean, this truth doesn't mean that our works are, are not important. Ephesians 2 tells us that God has good works that he planned in advance for us to do, that he wants us to be a part of, that he has especially assigned to us um, as, as the way, under the way he's gifted us and called us. But obedience flows out of faith. It's a consequence of saving faith, not a second condition for salvation. In week one, I quoted Martin Luther, who said, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. And the reason for this is because true faith in our hearts, when we grab hold of this understanding of this true faith in our hearts, it brings about naturally grateful, joyful, trusting obedience. It's just the natural outcome. But coming to an understanding of what saving faith is, is the key. This is what makes all the difference in the world. At the start, I said that we all exercise faith every day, but the real important um, part of this is the object of our faith. I've got a couple of chairs up here. I've got two chairs. One is this, um, this little chair here, and, and I can have all the faith in the world in this little chair to hold me. But the problem is, no matter how much faith I have in this chair, um, I, I, it, no matter how much faith I have in it, it's, it's, it doesn't have the strength to hold me, does it? And this is like what happens when we put our faith in our own works and our own obedience. We're actually putting our faith in ourselves to save us. And, and you know what happens? It leads us to one of two things, either to, to boasting and to pride, as we've read about in this chapter, or it leaves us to a sense of despair and self-hatred when we fail. But I can have all the faith I want in this chair to save me. But at the end of the day, um, all the faith I could ever have is not going to make any difference, is it? It's not going to hold me. Because on the other hand, I have this chair over here. And this represents to us the difference when we have our faith in Christ alone, apart from our own efforts. And all I need to have is just, just the tiniest amount of faith, just enough faith to allow myself to, to, to place my weight on this chair. And because the object of my faith this time is not in myself, it's actually in God and His power to save me, His ability. You know what happens? It actually leads to a humble confidence is what it leads to. It actually leads to rest and to freedom. This is the difference it makes when we place our faith and trust in him alone, not by works. And this is the call that God gives to each one of us. This is the truth that, that Abraham and David had discovered. Paul concludes chapter 4 with a real-life description of Abraham's faith and, and I love these last verses they encourage and have stirred faith within me in fact God's really been speaking to me through these last few verses over the last couple of weeks and actually the 10 days of prayer we're going to have is actually based on the truth of these last few verses let me read it to you be encouraged this morning 
It says, against all hope, Abraham believed in hope. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. And that Sarah's womb was also dead, yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promises of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Praise God. I love this passage, this section here. Paul says that Abraham did not waver through unbelief regarding the promises of God. Yet a quick reading of the account of his life in Genesis suggests maybe he did waver. I don't know about you, but sometimes we read Abraham's faith and think, I could never have faith like Abraham. But listen to, to the account of Abraham's life. He questioned God about God's promises. He lied about who Sarah was. More than that, he tried to bring God's promise of a child to fruition himself, if you know that story. Abraham did not always live out his faith. His obedience was not perfect. His trust fluctuated, but his faith was never extinguished. This is the key. He hung on to God's promises, even in his own flaws and failings. And as he did so, it says he was strengthened in his faith. He was able to look at a mistake and say, this has reminded me that my only hope is to trust in God's promise, not to trust in myself. I realise again, this is my only hope, is to turn and to trust in God and His promise and His ability. I want you to see this morning that the life of faith is not the perfect life. It is the life which clings on to what God has said He will do and which sees struggles, joys and failures as means of increasing our attachment to the God who makes and keeps his promises. Do you get that this morning? This is what the faith looks like, which God said, allowed God to credit to Abraham as righteous. This is what Abraham's faith looked like. So be encouraged this morning, because Paul says that those wonderful words in Genesis 15, 6, that his faith was credited to righteousness, was not just for Abraham alone, but it was also for you and for me. It was for us as well. Next Sunday is Pentecost Sunday and from next Sunday through until the following Tuesday for 10 days we're committing to praying and asking God to lead us once again as his church, to speak to us as we pray over some of the visions for this season ahead, this financial year ahead. And as is our practice of church, we come together, we pray, we say, God, will you speak to us? Will you show us your heart, show us your plans and your purposes? And as he speaks then we want to respond in obedience and faith. It's actually 10 days from Pentecost until the day of ascension, if you look at the scriptures. So it's significant, these 10 days setting aside to pray. And we have called these 10 days of prayer unwavering faith based on this, this section of scripture here, Romans 4.20, that Abraham never wavered in believing God's promises. In the same way, 
My prayer is that we would be a people who never waver in believing God's promise. But just like Abraham, grow strong in our faith and believe, being fully convinced that God is able to do whatever he promises, that our God is able. You know, as we pray over these 10 days, it's an opportunity for us to express our faith and trust in God and the promises that he has given to us. And as a church, he has given us promises. There is a promise that, that he has given to us as a church that he is going to bring revival to this area, and I'm sure far beyond this area as well. But we received it in 1994 from a mature age woman who received it as a young girl here in this community, received it as an audible voice from God that, that said that um, revival was going to come to this community. We've often shared that story across our history as a church, but there is more to the story of receiving that promise. Pastor Peter shared not too long ago about three occasions when he questioned whether that promise of revival was indeed something we'd received from God. And this is what he shared in a message a couple of years ago now. He said, I've often shared that story about the audible voice from God given to that lady, but what I have never shared here in a sermon are the three occasions when I questioned whether that promise of revival was indeed something that we had received from God. So let me read, he says, three brief entries from my journal. The first was the 10th of June, 2006, 17 years ago now. I asked Marie in bed last night if she believed God can send revival. I turned to read my devotion for the next day, not expecting anything in Romans on the issue of revival, but read this in Romans 4.20, our passage today. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. How amazing is that? And then on the 6th of January 2008, 18 months later, wondering again about revival, but that my reading was Psalm 85, which includes verse 6 Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? And the notes saying the psalmist was asking God to revive his people, bringing them back to spiritual life. He can pour out his love on us, renewing our love for him. If you need revival in your church family or personal spiritual life, ask God to give you a fresh touch of his love. How powerful is that? And then on the 15th of February, 2008, just one month later, been questioning a little about revival again. But here in my notes this very day, as you have done on other occasions to sustain faith, I find a reminder that you have a plan to bless. There were even the very questions I was asking. And Peter writes this, and so I and many others in this place believe that God has promised to do a great reviving work here and in many other places. And our responsibility as his watchman is not to fall asleep, but rather to pray and to keep praying. We are to give God no rest until his plan to revive and awaken us and many, many more is brought to fulfillment. Isn't that encouraging, church? This is God's promise to us. And so I want to invite you to come. Will you join us over these 10 days of prayer, unwavering faith prayer? Because your prayers actually add to the faith of others' prayers. You know, one of the most powerful, the most powerful demonstration of our faith and trust in God is by coming and praying to Him. As we pray, we're saying, God, I'm not relying on myself. I'm not relying on our own abilities. We're relying in you and your ability to fulfill what you have promised, that you are able. The newsletter is 
information around how you can join us over those 10 days and pray. There's prayer meetings on Zoom and those in person as well. But if, if you can only get to one prayer meeting, I want to encourage you, would you come on that Tuesday night, the 30th of May, for, for our outpouring night. We're going to pray over the visions. We're going to worship God together. Last outpouring night, we had around 700 people gathered together to pray and to seek God. It was so powerful. The presence of God was so near. We're praying again that hundreds will come and gather. As we pour our hearts out to God, as we join our faith with the faith of others and pray, God, come. Do a reviving work. It is our prayers, our faith expressed through prayer that enables the move of the Spirit of God um, in our community and beyond that as well. So as we finish this morning, let me ask you, firstly, this question, where is your faith this morning? Are you placing your faith in, in, in yourself, in your own ability to save yourself? Are you placing your faith in some of the things of this world, in your bank balance, in your success, your career? Is that where you're placing your faith? Because I want to tell you, it will only lead to one of two things, boasting and pride, or a sense of, of failure, of self-despair, self-hatred even. Or are you placing your faith in the Creator God, the God who is able, the God who has made a way for us to experience relationship with Him, to experience redemption, to experience forgiveness. If you've never, if you realize this morning, this morning you just realize that I've been putting my faith in myself on the things of this world that this morning you have an opportunity to do a trust transfer. That's what it means to make a decision in your mind, God, I'm going to stop trusting in, in my own works, my own obedience. I'm going to instead trust in you. I'm going to place my faith in you and your promises to save me. You can do that this morning. And what a blessing, what a difference that makes in your life. Or secondly, maybe you're here this morning and you've been wavering in your faith for the promises of God. Perhaps your faith has felt weak. Maybe you've even stumbled or fallen and you've been questioning your faith altogether. Maybe you've been thinking to yourself, well, how can God accept me? How could he possibly forgive me? How could he still use me? And it's in these moments, or maybe you're looking at the circumstances around you and think, God, you have forgotten me. God, where are you in, in my circumstances? You haven't been faithful to your promises to me. What I love about this passage, we look at Abraham's faith. His faith was not dependent on how he was feeling or the circumstances around him. He was very aware that he was, it says that he was as good as dead, 100 years old, that, womb, that, that Sarah's womb was dead. But it, despite the circumstances around him, despite how he was feeling, he never stopped holding on to the promises of God. He never stopped clinging on to those promises. For some of you this morning, you need to hear that. Because if our faith is based on how we feel or how we perceive, then it'll go up and down all the time. Instead, our faith is to be grounded on the objective truth of God's word. And those moments where we feel like, well, God, you couldn't forgive me, that God, you know, there's no way I can come back to you again. We can come to the word of God, which says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That nothing can separate us from the love of God. No matter how we feel, we can cling to these truths. That God will never leave us nor forsake us. This is to be the foundation of our faith. Our faith is not dependent on our feelings or our circumstances. It's based on the promises of a mighty and a faithful God. And so my prayer for you this morning is that your faith would be strengthened. That your faith would actually be lifted again this morning. And that collectively together, we will join together in prayer, knowing the promises God has given to us, personally and corporately. And as we pray, we will see God move, a mighty move of the Spirit of God in this community and beyond to our city and to our world. Will you join with me as we pray? Let's pray together. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. It's powerful, Lord. We thank you for this amazing truth that we are saved by faith alone. And Lord, I want to pray this morning for some here who realize that they have been relying on their own obedience, their own works to try and gain acceptance with your God, trusting in themselves for their own salvation. Well, I pray this morning, if that's you, that you're just even in now in these moments, just pray in your heart and say, God, I'm, I'm, I'm trusting in you. I'm going to stop trusting in myself. I'm going to do a trust transfer and place my faith in you, Jesus, coming to him in repentance and faith and acknowledging your great need for Jesus, that he went to the cross, he paid that debt for you, credited to your account righteous. You can experience that this morning by making a decision in your heart and your mind, calling out to God this morning. And for others here this morning who've just been wavering in your faith, your faith has felt weak, maybe you've been questioning God, are you still here, are you still working in my circumstance? Because it sure looks like you're not. Well, I pray this morning that your faith would be strengthened, that you cling to the promises of God. You remind again, God wants to remind you again that He is able, no matter how impossible it seems, He is able to fulfill his promises to you. Keep trusting. Keep pressing on in faith. And Lord, I pray that as we gather over these 10 days of prayer, Lord, that our faith expressed to you, our faith in the promises you have given to us, Lord, will open again a way for even more of your blessing to flow, a reviving work of your Holy Spirit. How desperately our community, our world needs this, God. And so, Lord, we'll... we'll you move in our hearts as we pray and we seek you. Raise up many, I pray, to come. Hundreds to come, to gather, to seek you, to pray with faith that we would be blessed, that our community would bless, and ultimately, Lord, as this passage says, that glory, that you would receive much glory, we pray. And so come, continue to lead us, we ask. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to finish by singing a great song. It's called Same God. It talks about the faith of some of these Old Testament heroes and New Testament heroes in this song, in fact, their faith was in God. And the same God who moved in power then is the same God that we look to and trust in today, still able, still moving in power. So will you stand with us and let's sing together as an expression of our faith this morning. Ask Him to continue to pour out His blessing. Let's stand and worship Him.
God, God, we want, to, we want to thank You for who You are this morning. We worship You, that You are the God who is able, more than able, to fulfil all of Your promises to us. And so I want to pray a blessing on each one here this morning, wherever people are on the journey of faith, Lord, that You'll encourage them and strengthen them to place all their faith and trust in You and in You alone. Lord, I pray as we gather to pray from next Sunday that You will move in our midst in power, that You'll strengthen our faith, that You will be glorified through our time of praying and seeking You together. You'd speak and lead us as Your people. And Lord, we pray this so that many, many would come into Your Kingdom, Lord. We are believing, Lord, for a season where literally hundreds, thousands are going to flood into Your Kingdom, Lord. This is our prayer. Move Your Spirit. And Lord, how desperately our world needs us, our community needs us to come. Holy Spirit, lead us as we seek You again, we pray. And we ask this in Your mighty and Your powerful Name. Everyone said, Amen. Amen. Please be seated. If you'd like prayer, some of our prayer team will be down the front, our prayer lounge. If you're online, you can reach out to Carly, our host this morning, or prayer at bridgman.org.au. But thanks so much for sharing with us. And don't forget, if you're here with us this morning, our welcome morning tea over in the chapel as well. God bless. Look forward to sharing with you again soon.